chapter 5, verses 12 through uh, Romans 6, 2. So bear with me, if you will, for just a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came... In so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask now as we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And by the power of your Spirit, we ask that you would give listening to our ears and believing to our hearts. That just as we were made aware of the poison of legalism, so this morning we would also be made aware of the the dangerous poison of antinomianism, and that we would see in these twin errors the same mistake, that they distort and misuse the grace of God. Lord, let us be wary of these false doctrines and these false beliefs, and let us cling to the cross and to the gospel of grace, of our Lord Jesus Christ. I decrease that you may increase, become glorified in this sermon. And we pray that your people would be strengthened by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> a dear congregation, last week we discussed the dangerous poison of legalism. We learn that legalism is anything, or to be a legalist is anything that a person believes that he can do, anything that he believes he can say, or even anything that he believes he can think that can earn him a right standing before God. Legalism is simply the belief that Christ Plus works equals justification. We discovered that the roots of legalism are found in the hearts of men. Legalism, listen, is the result of legalism. Legalism is the result of legalism. I'm not sure if I made that clear last week, but if I did not, let me do so now. Satan accused God of what? Of being legalistic. And Eve believed the lie. The result is that man 
has been trying to earn what he has lost by his disobedience, a right standing with God through legalism. We'll talk more about that this morning. Legalism believes that there is some good, some merit, some deed that we might offer to God in order to accomplish or be accepted as righteous before God. We learned what legalism is not and what those who, who uh, often accuse le- uh, those who often accuse others of being legalistic make this mistake. They mistakenly call those people whom they are accusing as legalists. They call them legalists because of their desire to obey God. Therefore, they are accused of legalism. They are called legalists because of their desire to obey God's law and to not stray from it in any way. Legalism is not obedience to God's word. Legalism is not obedience to God's law. That is what we said last week is called Christianity. Legalism is not learning to obey all that Christ has commanded for us. That's not legalism. That's discipleship. It's being a follower of Christ. Legalism is not pursuing holiness. We should all be pursuing holiness. Uh, Do not say to someone who calls you on your sin, don't be so legalistic. Thank them. Thank them for calling you on your sin. They are striving to make you more like Christ, at least. Legalism is not striving to please God and to glorify him in all that we do. That's not legalism. Legalism is not being zealous in our good works and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That, again, that is true Christianity. Legalism is not an error of Christianity. Legalism is altogether a different religion. Legalism draws attention to uh, us while the gospel draws attention to Christ. Finally, we asked, how, how might we learn to love God's law without becoming legalist? And the answer, which will be today's answer, is the grace of God. How do we love the law of God without becoming legalistic? The answer is the grace of God. The only way that we will learn to love the law of God is by the grace of God. We must see that the law of God transforms our hearts so that we can see the law of God as a gift and not a curse. That we can see it for what it is. Yes, it has been finished and completed by Christ. Fulfilled by Christ. Yes. We are now free from its guilt in Christ. Yes. But the law is is not our enemy. The law is our friend. The law has led us to Christ. It has shown us our great need for Christ. It has shown us that we need to flee to the cross of Christ. We therefore do not turn around to the law and then hate the law. Its use is first and foremost to show us our need of Christ. And it has accomplished that purpose. And then we return to it so that we might do what? Be like Christ. The law conforms us to Christ. Those who desire to walk like Christ, John says, must live as he lived or walk as he walked. And how did Christ walk? Christ walked in obedience to the law of God. Therefore, today, with God's help, we shall consider what many believe to be the non-identical twin, twin error of legalism, antinomianism. Antinomianism. Brothers and sisters, what is antinomianism? We've heard of individuals being labeled as legalistic, but I wonder if anyone has ever been called an antinomian. Has anyone ever called you, oh, you are acting so antinomianism, or you, you, are, ant- you are acting so antinomianistic? Has anybody ever used that law? And Were you offended when they said those things to you? I'm sure I could say that many of us have never been called antinomianistic. But I'm sure that many of us, if we are wise, may be able to see antinomianism in others. What does it mean? Antinomianism. Where does it come from? This uh, false error, antinomianism. 
What are the different forms? And then finally, what is the antidote to antinomianism? This morning we shall, with God's help, seek to, to discover some answers to all of these questions. And I have for you four points for your consideration this morning. Number one, which should be the most obvious, what is antinomianism? Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In Paul's letter to the Romans, he addresses an issue that has arisen through the teachings of the gospel of free grace. Do you hear that? Let's follow this Let's follow this doctrine to its fleshly, logical conclusion. There has been an, a, a dispute that has, been a, that has arisen in the Church of Rome concerning the free gospel of grace in Christ Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we can all affirm that and say, yes, to God be the glory in all men. Grace is that free gift of God that is offered in Christ Jesus. The believer can do nothing to receive this free gift except receive it by faith. It cannot be earned. It cannot be repaid. It is a gift. Isn't our natural instinct uh, when someone gives you something to naturally say, well, well, here, I've got something for you as well. It is, our, it is the natural inclination of the sinful human heart to, when someone gives to you, automatically say, well, let me give something back to you. I must repay you uh, of at least equal value. That is not the gospel of grace, though. My son and I were driving down the street the other day, and for some reason or another, we were talking about uh, receiving a gift and things being earned. And I said to him, nothing in life is free. And he said to me, except for grace, right, Dad? Exactly, son. That's the only thing that is free. The only thing that cannot be repaid. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. The good news is, you are not good enough. The gospel is, you can, and I can, never be good enough. The legalistic heart says, there must be something that I can do. There must be something that I can give. And in his heart of hearts, he misunderstands grace. In his heart of hearts, he misunderstands there is nothing of equal value that you can offer to God. In the place of the perfect and finished work of Christ, there's nothing. Not a thing. That man cannot fathom that there is simply nothing that he can do to attain the free gift of God. And oh, just like the legalist, the antinomian misunderstands the free gift of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the legalist takes his legalism too far, seeking to earn something that might gain him a right standing before God. And the antinomian, he takes the grace of God too far in using God's grace as a license to sin. Do you see the two extremes? One says, I have... Uh, with all of my heart, I must work to earn this grace. He misunderstands it. The other says, thank God for the grace of God. I can do as I please. They both misunderstand grace. And that was exactly what was happening in the church of Rome. There were those who professed Christ. And in their misunderstanding of the grace of God in Christ, they believed that they could sin as they please and it would have no bearing. No effect on their right standing before God. But isn't that so? Can't you sin? Don't you sin? And does your sin affect your relationship with God? Each time you sin, don't you need to be resaved all over again? Each time you sin, must you not walk down the aisle and once again receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? No. Are we, isn't it true that we are not under the law? 
but under grace? You see, these are the questions that arose in the church of Rome, as it were. If I am saved, then I am saved. If I am believing in Christ, which I do, then I can do as I please. The apostles' answer to those who were distorting the gospel of grace was this. Romans 6.15, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And his response is, may it never be. May it never be that the grace of God is our license to sin as we please. Paul goes on to say that when you were weak in the flesh, when you were unregenerate, not saved, that's when you were lawless. That's when you were an antinomian. But you have been saved from antinomianism and brought to the grace of God so that you might live in accordance to God's law. You haven't been saved from antinomianism to antinomianism. You haven't been saved from no law to live under no law. No, you have been saved by Christ. That's what the heathen do. The heathen live under no one's law but their own. As Brother Bobby said this morning, they are autonomous. They live by their own understanding. They live by their own law. They are their own gods. And therein lies the meaning of antinomianism. It is, if you're taking notes, lawlessness. Antinomianism is lawlessness. It means against the law. Anti meaning against and namas meaning law. Against law. Now, we must distinguish as we press forward in this sermon between law as a covenant of works and law as a rule of life. Do you know what the covenant of works is? It is that covenant that was made between God and Adam in the garden. It was that covenant made between God and Adam, wherein Adam could earn by his obedience glory and eternal rest and eternal Sabbath if he had obeyed the command of God. The tree of life was there to show him, this is your reward through obedience. If you work in this covenant, you shall receive eternal life. But we all know that Adam broke that covenant of works and that covenant of works no longer works. We can no longer earn our way before God. We can no longer earn glory for Adam failed. And when Adam failed and fell into sin, we all failed and fell into sin along with him. That covenant of works, that law no longer works. So then the law that we are talking about is not the covenant of works, but it is the law unto life. It is that law that has been written on the hearts of men via being created in the image of God. But as a rule of life, the law remains. And it is the denial of this that is the definition of antinomianism. The antinomian rejects any law. And again, as we are speaking of law, we are now speaking of the moral law, not the ceremonial nor the civil. We believe in a threefold division of the law, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But we are speaking specifically about that law that has been written on your and my heart, the law that has been imprinted on the creatures of God made in his image. It is that law that we read each Lord's day. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not have any other gods before me. The antinomian denies that law in any capacity. He denies that law remains for the believer in any kind of way. They deny the rule of life, the law as a rule of life for any believer. The historical use of the term antinomian, it doesn't appear out of thin air, but it appears to have risen, arisen in the days of the great reformer Martin Luther. As we well know, Luther had a great emphasis on Justification by the free grace of Christ, which produced freedom in the believer. And this is true. And one of Luther's friends, John Agricola, 
He, like the church of Rome, though some in the church of Rome, took the message of grace too far, the message of freedom in Christ too far. He began to drive to fleshly, logical conclusions, things that the Bible clearly does not teach, that because a man has been freed by the grace of God, he is therefore free from the law of God as a rule of over his life. He was an antinomian, Luther called him. Hence the word antinomian against law. And the result of this is an, an abuse and a distortion of the grace of God. In fact, there is no grace in antinomianism. If uh, we were to come to a more technical use of the word, it would be defined as those who take the view that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, Deca meaning ten, log meaning words, the ten words are no longer binding on the believer as a rule of life. It should be clear from this definition that antinomianism therefore existed long before the name antinomianism was given. Surely long before Luther, long before Agricola, long before the Apostle Paul as well. Our confession in chapter 19, paragraph 6, teaches that while the law is not a covenant of works to the believer, the law remains as a rule of life for the believer. He is no longer bound to the law as though it was a covenant of works, for it never was meant to be a covenant of works. The believer is bound to the law as a rule of life. This, in one way or the other, the antinomian denies. Dear ones, it is possible for and important for us to recognize the, the different faces and forms that antinomianism takes. Therefore, just as with legalism, we must be slow to accuse someone as being an antinomian. To call someone a heretic is a big deal. To call someone a legalist is a big deal. To call someone an antinomian is a big deal. Therefore, we must know what are the different faces of antinomianism so that we might not charge someone with this false teaching without just cause. So, in order for us to spot the different forms, I think that we have discovered at least three. Second point is the three forms of antinomianism. The three forms of antinomianism. First of all, antinomianism may appear in a doctrinal form. Doctrinal form. There are those who believe that the law of God has been abrogated, meaning done away with, both as a covenant of works and as a rule of life for the believer, fundamentally on a doctrinal level, because of a doctrine that they believe. There was not only a rejection of the law in the days of Paul, in the days of Luther, but also in the days of our Puritan forefathers. There were men like John Saltmarsh, Tobias Crisp, and John Eaton, who placed such an emphasis on the grace of God that they felt that any question of law was antithetical or directly opposed to the mighty grace of God. They emphasized that justification was eternal, listen, and that temporal justification was merely an expression of that eternal justification, which means this. They emphasized immediate assurance by the indwelling witness of the Holy Spirit, almost apart from the Word of God. And the consequence was the law of God really had no relevance or no place in the Christian believer's life. Why? Because he's been justified from all eternity. Justified in time now. And the Spirit of God is witnessing with his spirit that he's a child of God. Therefore, what need, what use is there for the law? Do you know people like that? What need is there for an objective standard for the believer? If we have received such amazing grace, that is this. If I'm saved, then I've always been saved. If I'm saved, then I was saved even in eternity past. 
And therefore, if I've always been saved, I can never be unsaved. Despite what I do. Therefore, I can do as I please. Do you see how that flows out of a doctrinal misunderstanding, though? Haven't you ever asked the question, if God has loved me before the foundation of the world, then I've always been his. And since I've always been his and I can never be never uh, not be his. And if I, I can never not be his, then it doesn't really matter what I do. That was the doctrinal misunderstanding. If I'm saved by grace, then there's no need for the law. If Christ has freed me, then I am absolutely free. What law do I need? Take that to its logical conclusion. Imagine driving 100 miles an hour down the freeway. The cop pulls you over, hopefully. And your response to him when he comes to your window and says, Do you know what you've done wrong? And you can say, I've done nothing wrong. I am not under law. I am under grace. It does not work. Right? We have the redemption of God. Yes. We are free people. Yes. What do we need the law for? We've been freed from it. The Lord says, no, you need the law. Guard your freedom. Guard your redemption. And how do we guard our freedom? How do we guard our redemption? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall live a life that is worthy of your, of your calling. And here, in order to, for that to be accomplished, here are my ten words that shall direct how you will live. When the law of God, which is the standard for our lives, the mirror for our lives, into which we look and test ourselves according to the work of the spirit of grace, is no longer relevant, then no fruit is necessary as an evidence of a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And what's the result? The result is something like, like, what, something like with what I grew up with, which is, Decisionism. I've made a decision a long time ago. I remember walking down an aisle and I prayed a prayer and I signed a card. I've made the decision. Yes, I am not in church, but I did make a decision once upon a time. You see, if there is no need for the law, then we can simply say, I once upon a time made a decision. Therefore, it does not matter what I do henceforth. But also easy believism. Decisionism takes the place of grace and easy believism takes the place of the fruit of the spirit. Brothers and sisters, we must avoid this at all cost. We must not view the unconditional grace of God as the unconditioned freedom of obligation to the God who has saved us by grace. He's given us free grace. And therefore, our obligations to him are no more. No, not, not the case at all. May it never be, Paul says. We must flee from the idea that what is required of us is simply to make a decision to come to Christ and not walk as Christ walked. Where could such an idea come from? It comes in the second mask of antinomianism, which is in the exegetical form. The doctrinal form, and then the exegetical form. The antinomian believes on the basis of exegesis, that is the interpretation of the New Testament, that there is no longer any place for the law of God as the law of morality in the believer's life. That the Christian does not need the law, for they say Christ has fulfilled the law. And not only that, but Christ has also done away with the law. One false teacher said, according to Paul, the believer is not under the law as a rule of life. Paul, therefore, makes no distinction between the end of the ceremonial law and the retention of the moral law. Here's what that means. The law is the law. Follow what I mean. We here and the Reformed all over the world believe in what is known as the threefold division of the law. That is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. That there is a distinction between the three. That there is distinctions within the law that are meant for certain people at certain times. 
and in certain places. This false teacher is saying there is no division. The law is the law. He falls into the theological thinking of, listen to the name, because although you may not be familiar with the name, many, if not all of us, have been greatly influenced by his false doctrine of dispensationalism. His name is John Nelson Darby. Dispensationalism. Without going into great detail about the false teaching of dispensationalism, in terms of the law of God, the, the, the dispensationalist believes that the law of God was something that is primarily, that was primarily Jewish and for the Jews. You hear that? That the law of God was Jewish and for the Jews alone. They believe that all that we accept of the law of God is only that which is repeated in the New Testament. That is the distortion of the gospel. The dispensationalist believes that there was a time when the law was a type of covenant of works, a republication of the original covenant of works. What does that mean? Wherein a man could be made righteous by his keeping of the law. That is to suggest that legalism saved the people of God in the Old Testament. And now faith saves the people of God in the New Testament. You ever heard that? Let me pause for a second and ask you. Did you ever once upon a time ask yourself, how were the people of God saved in the, New, in the Old Testament since Jesus wasn't there? And wasn't your answer often, well, they were saved by obeying the law. Where did you get that idea from? You got the idea from a man from the late 19th century named John Nelson Darby. And it has so infused the culture that when you watch TVN, they are mostly and for the most part, hopefully you don't watch TVN, but if and when you are listening to hyper dispensationalists, people like John Hagee, people like Rod Parsley, Kenneth Copeland, and all of the other false teachers, which I do not mind listing here for you today. But it has also crept into some great teachers of God's word. Men like John MacArthur, who is a faithful preacher and who has himself admitted that he is a leaky dispensationalist. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful of these kinds of teachings. It's false. The law is not a covenant of works. It is a rule of life and it is a roadmap where to Christ. The law points us to Christ who succeeds where we have failed, who triumphs where we have been defeated. They teach that the New Testament removes the law of God as a standard for the believer. They, that even if we hold these commands, that we hold them in a different way than they, than they were held in the, in the Old Testament. A theologian said, here is a marvelous thing that men say with the motivation of love. And with Christ's likeness as being our goal, that we should cast the law aside. Christ's life was one perfect fulfillment of the law of God. Be like Christ, then obey God's law. There are many who maintain for all practical purposes the same lifestyle as many who regard the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as a believer's rule of life. Does that make sense? There are those who will say, I don't believe in the Ten Commandments. I don't believe that they apply to us today. And yet they live by the Ten Commandments in their lifestyle. They will say with their mouths, I don't believe in it. I reject it. But they will say with their lives, yes, I do believe in it. I knew an individual who was a dear friend. And when I had this conversation with him about the law of God, he says, we are... There is no law. We are not under any law. The law of God, the moral law. I said, brother, the law that's been written on your heart. You know, here's one for you. I said to him, friend, do not commit adultery. Do you believe that law? And he says, well, well, no, I don't believe that law. I said, so then you believe you are free to commit adultery against your wife? Well, I don't believe that. And I said, well, would you commit adultery against your wife? No, I would never do that. And you believe in the law of God. Although you deny it with your mouth, you live it and live by it in your life. There are many who maintain 
the same standard of life as those who confess the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, but they deny it with their mouths. Except for one. We all live by the, I believe, the Ten Commandments. Except one. There is one that we deny with our mouths and we also deny with our lives. Can you guess which one that might be? It is the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath. Even for those who say, I believe in, in the law of God generally, there is one that I deny. And it would be that fourth commandment. What have they done? They have replaced the Mosaic Decalogue, ten words, with what they call the Christian Novemologue, nine words. In other words, instead of having ten commandments rooted in Exodus chapter 20, and we believe rooted in creation, they have nine commandments that they find rooted only in the teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They will even go as far to say that Christ broke the Sabbath in order to show that the Sabbath no longer remains. That is heresy. If Christ broke the Sabbath, then Christ is a lawbreaker. And if he is a lawbreaker, then he cannot be your and my Savior. Why nine? Because they say there is no place for the fourth commandment. That it is a law but it is a law that is most outwardly telling of our devotion to God. I can't wait in two weeks to talk to you about the Lord's Day Sabbath. Maybe it will be, no, in two weeks. I just said something. The fourth commandment is the most outwardly telling, the most outward evidence of our devotion to God. What do I mean? Can we most easily spot a confessor who does not have God as his God? Not most easily. Can we most easily spot a man who is worshiping idols or taking God's name in vain? Is it easy to spot? No, it's not. Can we most easily spot an adulterer, a liar, a murderer, a coveter, a thief, and one who does not honor his parents? No, they are not immediately easy to spot. Sometimes they can even be among you and fly right under the radar. Oh, but one who does not honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Their rebellion against God is clear enough for all to see. Especially common professors of the faith those who gather on the Lord's Day, and when we do not see others who also profess the faith among us, and when we speak to them and they say, well, I'm not going today simply because I have this and that and this wonderful thing to do and that wonderful thing to do. I do not have enough time for the Lord's Day. Well, their violation of God's law and their devotion to God is clear as day. I believe that although many would claim their reasons for rejecting the continuation of a Sabbath, that they may claim it to be exegetical, I believe that the matter of the heart is antinomianism and not exegetical. They hate God's law. Did I say hate? I did. They hate God's law. To even suggest that, this is what the antinomian says, to even suggest that our honoring of the fourth commandment in any way is telling of my heart they will say it's legalistic to suggest in any way that what God has prescribed is to be obeyed they say it's legalistic that attending to the means of grace is any indication of my heart toward God is offensive to them. You don't know my heart, they say. And they are those who confess Christ as their Lord, but they reject the Lord's day. The antinomian says, I can love God truly without attending to the worship and the fellowship of God and his church. It's just fine. That is antinomianism. 
That is taking the grace of God too far. To the disobedient one, he squirms in his seat. Each time honoring the Lord's day Sabbath is spoken from the mouth of God's servant. Dear one, if you are a believer in Christ, you should not squirm. You should rejoice. And the antinomian has said, well, it matters not. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. I'm freed from it anyways, they say. How many have left the Reformed Church and even this church? Over what? Over what? Over the Lord's day. Imagine that. Over whether or not you have been commanded by God to meet with God. No matter what you do in between services. Your business. But to not forsake the assembling of the saints when we gather for worship. To say legalism. I will remove myself from these people. What a sad, what a sad, sad conclusion that antinomian comes to. Why? Because the Sabbath remains. Why is, that a so, why is that so offensive? Because it interferes with the worship of our true God, ourselves. It interferes with what we really want to do. And if, God's, if it is God's law, then we know that we will be held accountable to God's law. For our rebellion of it. So the only answer for this person is to somehow reason in their minds that it is no longer applicable to them. Let me say that even if I believed in the Decalogue and they believe in the Novemologue, there is a far greater gap between the two positions than just merely 10% of the commandments of God. Its repercussions reach farther and further than just 10% of how we live our lives before God. And finally, antinomianism appears in an experimental form. Experimental, doctrinal, exegetical, experimental. It was Thomas Shepard who said, Those who wrote that those who deny the use of the law to any that are in Christ become patrons of free vice under the mask of free grace. This, anti, this kind of antinomianism is this. It is sheer wickedness. That is the third mask that the antinomian will wear. Sheer wickedness. It turns the grace of God into a license to sin. It says, free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. That is not Christianity. That is Roman Catholicism. Brothers and sisters, are you amazed that you have been saved? Is the grace of God amazing to you? Do you understand the sheer miracle of regeneration? Do you remember the mud and the muck in which you were trapped in? Do you remember the tomb and the stench of death in which you lived? Or should I say in which your corpse rotted? And by the grace of God, the stone was rolled and and light shone into that dark cave. And you were called by name out of your death and into the light and life of Christ. What a wonderful work of regeneration and miracle God has given to our lives. You are saved. Oh, blessed believer, you are saved. And blessed be to God, you are saved. You are regenerated by the grace of God. You who were walking in darkness have been given eyes to see. And we can only liken it to the time when God said in the beginning, Let there be light, and there was light, and light shone upon the whole of creation. That is what happened to you and I when you and I were saved. When again our once rotting corpses were brought to life in an instant. To become a Christian is the most supernatural, miraculous thing in all of the world. Even though it happens silently. Even though sometimes it happens in in the secret life of the believer. What a joy it is to be saved. And we can so emphasize the goodness and the grace of God. And we can then overlook what God then requires from his saints. He does not say, go and continue in your sin. When he saves the woman who has been caught in adultery, he looks to her and says, my dear daughter, go and sin no more. And what does she do? Does she look to Christ, turn and say, 
I guess I will just now learn to live in my own way. No, she is there. She is there following Christ. I am sure that when Christ says to her, go and sin no more, she could not take her eyes off of Christ, but stayed only just a few steps behind him, watching how he lived and emulating every single thing he has done. And could that, should that not be the same for each and every one of us, that Christ has called us out of our sin to himself, and our resp- his response to us is, go and sin no more. And we say to him, Lord, show me how. Show me how. Oh, and do we fail? Yes. Is there grace? Yes. But our grace, the grace given to us in Christ, will never be a license for Christ to say to us, go and continue in your sin. It is always a cause to go and sin no more. That antinomian says, you have saved me. Now I can do as I please that My dear brothers and sisters, that is not Christianity. That is wickedness. That is not what a regenerated, saved person does. And only the full understanding of the gospel of grace and all that it has done for the believer can ever sustain the believer as he lives under the rule of God for his life. It's a very different thing, though. To live under the disguise of self-acceptance. To live any way we please as though the grace of God has so enriched us and given us the power to live as we please. No. Those who say that God has accepted me as I am, why should I put this straitjacket of the law on me? I can be myself, even my worst self. And still be loved by God. No. We all recognize and acknowledge that we are not our best self. But we are striving toward holiness by the grace of God. We are never trying to revert back to our sin. Instead we are seeking the face of God. And how we can become more and more like him. With pity. We can only say that those kind individuals never understood the grace of God. The gospel makes you not like yourself. Not even your best self. But it makes you more like Christ. And conforms you more and more to the image of his son through holy sanctification. And what is the tool that God uses and utilizes to sanctify us unto himself? My dear brothers and sisters, it is God's holy law. It is the word of God as it is is being brought to bear upon your conscience and your ears this morning. It is that which God utilizes. It is the means of grace that we will partake of today that God uses to make us more like his son. Isn't that the goal? To be more like Christ? Oh, in this day of individualism, in our day of licentiousness, In our day when the world squeezes or attempts to squeeze professing believers into his mold. Antinomianism in its worst form is merely licensed vice. Free grace becomes cheap grace. And the Son of God is crucified over and over again by the wickedness of men. May God prevent his church and this church from so perverting the gospel of grace that when men might say, may we continue to sin so that grace may abound, we say no. There is grace, yes, so that we can turn from our sin, but when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Thirdly, and these will be much shorter, where does antinomianism come from? I alluded to this earlier when the serpent came to the woman in the Garden of Eden. His question to her was simple. It was this. Has God said? That was the question. Has God said? And with that simple question, as simple as it was, there was a myriad of implications in terms of the character of God, the holiness of God, the love of God, the goodness of God. And they were all the like challenged in one moment in the mind of this sinless woman. 
The serpent caused one question and many, maybe many to arise in the woman. And one of them was at least this. Is Yahweh, is he legalistic? Is what he has commanded me, robbing me of a certain joy, something that would enhance my life rather than take away from joy of my life? And brothers and sisters, is that not all what we wrestle with on a daily basis? Is, is there something taught in this Reformed church that is robbing me of a joy? Is there something taught each Lord's Day after Lord's Day that is robbing me of something that would make my life more complete? We look to our friends who do not go to churches like ours. And we see their smiles. We see the fun they are having in their church. We see the variety of programs and we see the variety of things that are happening in their youth and with their children. And we say, that sounds like fun. It sounds like maybe I am being robbed of something here. Is what Yahweh, is what he has commanded a yoke that is unjust and too heavy a burden to bear? As we know, because of the woman's disobedience, the answer in her mind and the answer in Adam's mind was unmistakably yes. Yes, he is keeping me from being a God. Yes, he is keeping me from the delight of that fruit. Yes, he is keeping me from being more than I could be. The woman's and Adam, the man and woman's solution to legalism was antinomianism on the part of God. If God is the legalist, the way I can escape this legalism is antinomianism, they reasoned. No law. Rather than submitting to the law of God, she would cast off, off all restraints and hopes that she would be free. Did her pursuit and choice of antinomianism, did it result in freedom? No. Rather than freedom, man fell into bondage. What the woman perceived was bondage, was freedom. God's law and what she thought was her freedom became her bondage. Legalism and antinomianism. We often think that antinomianism and legalism are the opposite, right? We say the opposite of legalism is antinomianism. And there's good biblical reason to make that kind of conclusion. But they are not so different. Are they? They are not so, so opposite. Yes, on the one hand, legalism takes the law of God to an heretical extreme with its additions to the law of God in, in order to be justified before God. On the other hand, antinomianism takes the grace of God to a heretical extreme by using the grace of God as a license to sin. But they're not so different, are they? For both legalism and antinomianism are opposites of the grace of God. They are both opposites of the grace of God. Antinomianism is not a reaction to the grace of God. It is a reaction to legalism. And yet, in thinking that they have reached the opposite of legalism, they, at the end of the day, they have fallen into more legalism that is much more difficult for them to ever remove themselves from than their former legalism. Oh, you have to go back and hear this again in the slower version. I understand. Antinomianism can never be the cure for legalism. Because only the grace of God is the cure for legalism and antinomianism. Think of it as a triangle. That the only way to cure legalism on one side and antinomianism on the other side is to reach the grace of God, which is at the peak of them both. They divert from the grace of God. But in order for them to be cured, they must turn to the grace of God. 
Even though one reacts to legalism and to antinomianism, he retains precisely the same bondage and legal frame that he had when he was a legalist. In his heart of hearts, he thinks of God in the exact same way as he did when he was a legalist. Ralph Erkstein said, the greatest antinomian was the legalist. The legalist is often the antinomian. And how? Because, again, they both distort the grace of God and fail to recognize the law of God with a proper view. Very often, those who are antinomians attempt to run from the law. But they can never run from the law that is upon every single man, woman, boy, and girl. The law written on our hearts and the law that each of us have broken in Adam. Where does it come from then? It comes from our heart. It comes from fallen man's fallen condition. The heart that is drawn into the direction of legalism is also the heart that is drawn into the direction of antinomianism. The heart that wants to be free from legalism thinks that the answer is the removal of law, removal of law, and yet they never find the answer. It's in every single one of us. It's in every single one of us. Every time a child of God has the tendency to flee to antinomianism, to escape this tension between the law of God and being a believer of God, we must ask God to give us grace and to forgive us. Haven't you felt it? Haven't you felt the desire to run from what God has commanded? Haven't you felt the desire to sometimes forsake what God has commanded and say, do I really need this for my life? If we are honest, we all have done this. If we are honest, we all get tired. The man who says he has faith and never doubts does not really have faith because to have faith is to be honest about the fact that we often doubt. We often doubt. We often wrestle. We often fight. It's true. And yet it's all for our good. And yet it's all for our growth. It is all meant to reveal our sin and help us to put sin to death. It's inevitable that we will cry out, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? But the answer is never legalism. The answer is never antinomianism, but it is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, who through the mighty sin-breaking power of his death has begun to fulfill by the spirit of life in me the just requirements of the law. Have you noticed that the Apostle Paul, and in all of the epistles for that matter, have never said the law has died to the believer? But rather, the believer has died to the law. The law still exists, and the believer who is married to Christ in his imperfect state of sanctification will evermore know the tension because he is married to a new husband. And even that law which he delights in, even that law which he knows is good, even that law which he knows is spiritual, he sees that he will fail over and over again to keep it in his life. And what is the answer each time we fail? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is, is from the Father. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And not only that, but it is each time we are persuaded by the gracious promise of the Holy Spirit that he takes the grace that belongs to Christ and gives it to us as an assurance of our faith. That we are loved by the Father, that we are loved by the Son, that we are indwelt by the Spirit. Don't, don't doubt that. Don't doubt that. Man by nature is a legalist. He can never escape his, his propensity to legalism. You can never escape it by going to antinomianism. Grace is our only escape. Grace is our only escape. Brothers and sisters, let's move finally to our final point. What is at stake? And we close. What's the purpose then? Oh, I could spend Sunday after Sunday speaking to you about the 
the role of the law of God in the believer's life. But let's just briefly discuss what place does the law have in our lives? Beloved, it is not in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus where God tells us that his law is holy. It's not in the 20th chapter where God says to us that the law is spiritual. It's not in the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus where the law, where God says that the law is good. But rather it is in the Gospels and it is in the epistles of the New Testament where these wonderful things are said about the law of God. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I have not come to remove the law, to dispose of the law. I have come to fulfill the law. And he says... I will not remove one letter, one iota from the law of God. It shall remain. Heaven and earth shall pass away. The law of God shall remain. Why? Because God remains. The law of God is a reflection of of God. It is a reflection of the goodness and the character of God. If the law is removed, then God is removed. May it never be. The apostle, when wrestling with his sin, does not for one moment say, who will save me from this law? Who will save me from this body? This body of death, not the law. He delights in the law, he says. In his inward inward parts, he confesses, it is good, it is spiritual. The grace that is in the law is a reflection of the grace of our God. It cannot be removed. As one false teacher said, we cannot unhitch ourselves. Oh, we shall and we should unhitch ourselves in the Old Testament. We cannot unhitch ourselves in the Old Testament. And may it never be. Secondly, there is grace given to the believer in the giving of the law. We cannot look at the law of the Old Testament and somehow think there was no grace there. Don't you look at the Old Testament and say, but the grace was not there. Have you ever read all of the verses of Psalm 119? Have you? The grace of God is provided for us in the law. In the law of the Old Testament. And we cannot for one second read Psalm 119 and think for a second that there is no grace in the law of God. How blessed are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the law of God. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Those who do, who do no unrighteousness, they walk in his ways. You have ordained precepts that they should keep them diligently. Oh, that I may, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon your commandments. I give thanks to you who with upright... To you with uprightness of heart, when I learn of your righteous judgment, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me. You're telling me there's no grace. Read the rest of them. Maybe a hundred verses there. You cannot write these words without knowing there is grace in the law of God. Without knowing there is goodness in the law of God. The antinomian would choke would choke before they could ever utter the words, Oh, how I love your law. I delight in your law after my inward man. The only one who could ever say, This is the one who sees that the giving of the law is a giving of grace to God's people. We must see the place of the law in the redemption of God's plan of redemption as well. And, and in closing, it is his law. That he puts in people's hearts in the new covenant. Do you know what the eternal state would be when we're in heaven? Do you know what it will be like? It will be like this. No man will need to teach his neighbor. Love God and follow his law. Why? Because we will all have God as our God. And the law as our greatest delight. Oh my God. What blessed day that will be. What blessed day it will be when we all with joyful hearts obey and keep the law of God. And when God will be our God and he and we his people in the eternal state. And that state will never end. The promise of the new covenant is this. 
I will be your God and you shall be my people. And we will live joyfully under his rule. This is the covenant of the blood of Christ. That's now founded. Now not only on what God has done in creation. Or what God has done in the book of Exodus. In receiving the law from Mount Sinai. But what Christ has done on Mount Calvary. In shedding blood letting even. A sacrifice for you and I that we might be his people and he our God. And we might live under his rule. We are commanded to love God. How do we love him? By obeying his commands. We are to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest command. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Brothers and sisters, I, I encourage you. Don't run from the law of God. It's the gift of grace for our life. Don't run from the law of God. It is woven into God's plan of redemption. Don't run from the law of God. For it will be that law which we live under in the eternal state. And that day will never end. Let us begin to practice now. Shall we pray?